0: Hi, my name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to the Bible in a Year, the Story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. Today is day 28, and we're reading from the NIV version of the Bible. We're starting Exodus, chapters 1 and 2, Leviticus 1, and Psalms 44. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Zephtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses, a store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar. With all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sipara and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women deliver during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "'Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you.' So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, "'I drew him out of the water.' One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their harsh labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand." The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him and invite him to have something to eat? Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter, Zipporah, to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help became, because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked at the Israelites and was concerned about them. Leviticus 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be accepted to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's son, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the side of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar." You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash its blood against the side of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It's a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, ring off the head and burn it on the altar, but its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to God. Psalms 44. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us. What you did in their days, in days long ago, with your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the people and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep, and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame. At the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt of jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God, our spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secrets of our heart. Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Okay, we have officially started Exodus and Leviticus. These are more challenging books, I would say, than Genesis. I am going to call this story today, A Baby Rescue and the Identity Crisis of Dislocation. So Dr. Carmen Imes describes how Exodus starts with and, in quotes, in Hebrew, which tells us it's a continuation of the story from the Genesis scroll we just finished. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. From Genesis, the book we just read, we learned about a couple, Adam and Eve, and then families that were shared as patriarchs, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and ended with a tribe, Jacob's 12 sons. Remember, Jacob was renamed Israel. That will turn into a nation here in Exodus. They will become the Israelite people. We ended Genesis with Jacob and his twelve son's story where we learned that Joseph, Jacob's 11th son, remained viceroy to Pharaoh, his brothers remained in Egypt with him, and they received God's blessing a filling. Dr. Kime points to this in Exodus 1-7. To the author's use of words from Genesis 1 and 2 here, yet over the course of about 400 years, the Hebrew people, Jacob's 12 sons and their families, were not able to rule and subdue, but in fact became ruled by Pharaoh. So part of the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative of what God ordered about us receiving the blessing and filling was happening, but instead of us ruling and subduing, we were being ruled and subdued. So now let's zoom out for a minute to the larger story being told in Exodus. Dr. Carmen Imes and Dr. Tim Mackey describes Exodus as having two parts. So part one is the saga of Moses or the story of Moses being delivered from Pharaoh and commissioned by God in chapters one through four. So it's really out of like 40 chapters, it's small but condensed, which we cover in the next few days. Part two is the saga of the Hebrews where God is delivering them from slavery under Pharaoh using 10 plagues and commissioning them to God through his covenant, which in Hebrew is referred to as the 10 words, but we more classically understand them as the 10 commandments. And God is coming close bringing his presence to his people in chapters 5 through 40. The story of Exodus has an individual and a collective aspect. It has a freed from and a freed for story in it. The first part is about delivering the delivered, and the second part is about the delivering of us helping to deliver others for the purpose of human flourishing as a kingdom of priests. So if you remember from Genesis, he gave us blessing and he wanted us to use our blessing to bless others. That pattern is continuing. The whole book of Exodus is taking place in Egypt, but the first part in the story of Exodus from Pharaoh and the second is the commissioning of the Hebrew people by God with a covenant and his presence at a place called Mount Sinai, sometimes referred to as Mount Hebron. Dr. Tim Mackey describes Pharaoh as worse than Babylon and King Nimrod from Genesis because he was not only rebelling against God, but oppressing people. And God hears their call for help and responds. So now let's zoom back into Exodus 1 and 2, which we read today. So Exodus 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 10, doctor Common Kamen-Eims draws our attention to who is named and who is not named in the story and reflect on the reasons why. So the two midwives are named Sippara and Pua, yet the Pharaoh's name is not given. Which Pharaoh was it? Even today, people speculate about which one it was. Similarly, it didn't catch my attention until I took the Exodus Bible course with Dr. Carmen Imes through the Bible Project that there are two pharaohs in the story, which similarly had oppressive policies against the Hebrews. The first is when Moses is born, and the second pharaoh, the new one, is when he returned to mediate God's rescue of the Hebrews from the slavery under his pharaoh. Dr. Carmen Imes considers the writing and the author's genius to suggest that not naming the pharaoh might be a way of demoting pharaoh and minimizing his importance in the story, making him more peripheral or muted and in the background of the story, while naming the midwives and their role in acting out and faith as a way to emphasize, memorialize, and place their actions in the foreground of the story. Likewise, not naming the pharaohs and letting their identities converge might also make them seem more mysterious and perhaps larger than life in this type of opposition to God and his people. So it seems that not naming someone might contribute at times to minimizing them and at other times abstracting them to something categorically larger. Similarly, in this story, Jacob's 12 sons that we read about in Genesis are named because their families will become the new nation, centering them in the story as something important to what God is going to do here. More people are not named in chapter 2, and we'll come back to that, but let's attend to the rest of chapter 1 unfolding. Let's pick up the story where Pharaoh is afraid of the sheer size of the Hebrews in chapter one, verse eight, and he worries about them rising up to war against him. Particularly so, he is oppressing them so severely as slaves. So this Pharaoh tried to take wisdom, which is interesting because his strategies, in quotes, are subverted and thwarted at every turn. And Dr. Carmen Imes contrasts how this Pharaoh tries to take wisdom. And in Genesis 41, a Pharaoh from that time acknowledges Joseph's wisdom, not his own, giving Joseph a portion of authority and control because he's wise. It has this echo-like effect pointing back to the tree of life and tree of knowledge from Genesis 2, where we go to accept God's wisdom, trust and follow him, or are we going to take our own and create our own sense of wisdom and what's right and wrong, like Pharaoh's doing here? Dr. Carmen Iams points to the fact that the narrator of Exodus gives lots of clues to how Pharaoh's actions actually lead to counteractions which completely undermine his goals. Also, just a note on context, if you remember from the Joseph story, to survive the famine, Joseph had all the people—Egyptians, Hebrews, everyone—give their animals and land and basically centrally own everything and have everyone work for Pharaoh— Yet, you'll remember the signpost in the last story that the Egyptians were disgusted by the Hebrews. And in this story, we are seeing that has become a full-blown racist oppression of the Hebrews. And the pharaohs saw themselves as gods. And the slave work was largely building up storehouses of provision to give sacrifice to pharaohs even long after they are dead. Their force to labor was not only to oppress them, but to prop up a false religion. This is so far away in contrast to what God wanted from the creation story. He is a God of order, not chaos and oppression, and he wanted his people to worship him. Through a close relationship to him, purposeful work and creation care, to rule, subdue, and receive his blessing of filling and multiplying, and provision and progeny that blesses all of creation. God gives us a portion of his power and authority to bless others, where Pharaoh takes power and authority, people's freedoms, forces their worship, and oppresses them through grueling labor to keep them from flourishing, rising up to their God-given purpose. God is and will respond. So zooming in, Pharaoh doesn't seem satisfied with oppressing them. That's strategy number one. His fear, rightly so, (laughs) grows, and he doesn't want the Hebrews to grow an army, so he called the midwives to kill the firstborn babies, strategy number two. And these women undermine Pharaoh, saying the Hebrew mothers give birth before they get there. And so Pharaoh moves to strategy number three, commanding the Hebrew baby boys to be thrown into the Nile River so dark. Uh, then there's this tale of these three daughters and a use of Hebrew words and phrases about seeing and seeing something that is good, which echoes back to the creation story where God saw that creation was good. And here in Exodus in verse 2 chapter 2 verse 25, chapter 3 verse 7, and in chapter 3 verse 9, God is looking and seeing the, this mystery and and their suffering, the oppression and God is concerned and will respond. We also read that the daughter of Levi, in quotes, saw that he, which is, we know is Moses, was good when she had him in chapter 2, verse 2. She had the eyes to see God's goodness. Dr. Carmen Imes describes this wording as much more than just a mother loving her baby, as we generally and genuinely understand humanity to work. But this seeing, in quotes, was connected to God. And likewise, in chapter 2, verse 4, the baby sister sees, in quotes, what is happening to her baby brother in the Nile River. Note the sister is Miriam and the baby brother is Moses, but they're not named yet in the story. We also know from other verses in scripture that Miriam is about six years old. She's the oldest and Aaron, Moses's older brother, is about three years old because Aaron was the firstborn, but the second oldest and Moses is the newborn. Also note that the daughter of Pharaoh sees, in quotes, the basket and sees, in quotes, the baby and feels sorry for him. Dr. Carmen Imes describes how this thread of seeing points to seeing that something is good in Genesis as God did. It is a type of seeing God's will in God's ways, seeing God's goodness, wisdom, and immutable character, even when it is not culturally desirable or obvious in that time. And then the sacrificial love of the mother, her trust in God, the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter, the attentiveness, loyalty, and courage of Miriam, the six-year-old sister, they all act At great risk to themselves, these women are a part of God's story of delivering the deliverer. They help to deliver the one who will deliver the Hebrew people. This has a cool foreshadowing effect to what we know happens in the New Testament, where Mary delivers the deliverer. She is the one God chose, and she is... The way God chose to be delivered into our midst, to be cared for and raised by a woman and grown up to deliver us all, to become the wounded victor promised in Genesis 3.15. God so frequently chooses the weak to lead the strong. Another interesting insight that Dr. Um, Imes points to is the Hebrew language connection to Moses being put into the basket in the Nile River and Noah in the ark. The Hebrew word tabah is used to reference Noah's Ark in Genesis 6.14 and Moses' basket in Exodus 2 verse 3. This deliverance, this rescue by God and identification of destruction by water is made clear. Likewise, the river Moses is placed in is described as a place where he is put in a river amongst the reeds, and later the Hebrews are delivered across Yam Supa, this Hebrew word means a sea of reeds. Yet most Bible translations, including the NIV, called it the Red Sea. But it's interesting to note that's not what the Hebrew author called the sea. Not that this sea isn't real, and perhaps the Red Sea or several other adjacent seas, but the author seems to be focusing on tethering the theological relationship between how God delivered the individual, Moses, and commissions the individual into the rescue mission of others on his behalf. It's also interesting to note that the Nile River is a place of blood in the sense the babies will were killed here and we don't know how many but in any and all cases really dark we also know that pharaoh's daughter was bathing in it which is kind of weird interesting i don't know because they did have indoor plumbing at this time and some speculate it was because she was perhaps infertile and happy the ancient egyptian god of the nile river was considered the personification of natural fertility or maybe she was being present called to be a part of a rescue mission maybe just maybe she was not indifferent but incredibly troubled at the idea that Pharaoh would kill babies. Maybe if she was infertile, this exacerbated her sensitivity to the preciousness of children and life. Water throughout the Bible can be an instrument of chaos and a vehicle of deliverance. It's somewhat similar to the concept of darkness that is often described as something chaotic and evil, but it also can be used for solitude, defense, and deliverance. The point being, God is sovereign over the water and the darkness. I love how Moses' mother was able to nurse him, but I still had a hard time with his separation from her into Pharaoh's house. It made me feel similar to the Joseph exile from his family and adoption, in a sense, eventually, into Pharaoh's family. Pharaoh's daughter named Moses, which in Hebrew means, the one who draws out, and Egyptian just means, son of, dot, dot, dot. There's more clarity in his Hebrew identity than in the Egyptian one. Also, I can't help but point back to the fact that the mother of Moses, Pharaoh's daughter, even the sister in this story, are not named. In this case, especially when you see them collectively, they're converging into something categorically larger. They are being Moses' Ezer connecto. If you remember from day two, Genesis two, Ezer kenegdo is the name given for women as man's connected with and confronting, facing partner and rescuing and protecting. Just as the term Ezer kenegdo only ever referred to the nations that came to the aid of Israel or God himself when coming to help or rescue Israel in the Old Testament. The women in this story played a central role in delivering the Deliverer. They were leaning into God's order as characterized by them in the Garden of Eden story. That's really cool. We talk about we talked about Moses' name and how it foreshadows his role as the Deliverer, but also embraces the ambiguity of his sense of identity. We see this played out as Moses wanted to deliver the Hebrews from the oppression of the Egyptian, but Moses killed him and hid him. Consider who would be blamed for this, most likely the Hebrews. Then in the next conflict, the Hebrews fight each other, and Moses again wants justice, but the Hebrews confront him with who who his identity is and what gives him the right. Who are you? Moses cannot answer this, and coupled with the fear of Pharaoh killing him, he flees to Midian. Again, in a third act, Moses rescues a group of female shepherds from other shepherds by a well, of course, and we learn that one of the females, Zipporah, becomes Moses' wife, and she's the daughter of the Midian priest and shepherd, Ruel Jethro. Moses states he is a foreigner in a foreign land. He is certainly feeling an identity crisis and a sense of alienation and dislocation from home. But he isn't quite sure whose he belongs to or where home is. I think we can all relate to this in one way or another at one time or another. Now we don't know for sure what Jethro was a priest of, but we have been learning what happens at wells, brides and grooms meet. They marry and have a son named Gershom, and we learn that the king of Pharaoh of Egypt dies. We also read that God sees and is con- concerned about the Israelites, similar language to the women who rec- rescued Moses in their first part of the story. And now Now God is going to rescue his people. Right, So it's like zooming in, zooming out, this individual personal relationship, and then something bigger, a big nation. Similar in structure to Exodus, where there is a first part that is about freeing from, and the second part, which is about freeing for, Leviticus has two parts. The first is about our individual restoration and redemption as a kingdom of priests. And the second part is how to represent and invite others to be a nation of priests. Note, it isn't about being saved or having a right relationship. The covenant provides for this in the Old Testament, and Jesus' fulfillment of that in the New Testament. Leviticus is about healing, restoration, and redemption in ourselves and bearing God's name in a fourfold way as He communicates to us how to be priests. More on this in a minute. We also read Leviticus 1, which Marty Solomon and Brent Billings describe as a story about being a treasured possession. It's like wedding language, and you will become a kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom with priests, they point out, but a kingdom of priests. So we have to learn what a priest is. This is a book that describes priesthood. Leviticus seems like a big book of laws, but chapters 1 through 7 are all about atonement, sacrifice, first the cost of it. In marketing, we don't usually start with the price, but God is making sure there's no bait and switch here. The cost is clear upfront. It's the Pledge of Allegiance to yield our freedom to our Creator, to step into the only type of freedom that leads to the fullest type of flourishing and our truest purpose. After atonement, we are right with God. This is important because following the rules won't make us right with God. This is a missional call that all nations would be blessed through God, not about being saved or retiring to some abstract heaven. God is saying you and I are good and in a relationship. This then becomes about being a part of his C-suite or leadership team on earth to restore and redeem his kingdom that is alienated and dislocated. Marty Solomon describes the next part of Leviticus as a priest witch or a priest sandwich. Chapters 8 through 10 is going to be all about the priesthood, what they should wear and do. They're held to a higher level of expectation on sexuality and dressed. The do's and don'ts are shared. It's like after you join a company and they share their values and they expect you to uphold as an employee and how to act with their customers, it might also be like a brand book where the colors are shared in continuity and architecture so that the outside world sees your heuristics, your aesthetics, and knows whose you are and what you are all about. And they have an expectation there's like a promise in there and then chapters 21 to 22 describes what happens when a priest screws up by not treating their role or as set apart but as trying to be common and without differentiation it's like not following the brand book or value statements your company gave you this confuses the outside world and moves in the opposite direction of restoration and redemption In Exodus 19.6 and 1 Peter 2.9, God's people are described as a kingdom of priests individually and we are described as a holy meaning set apart nation collectively. Leviticus describes how we need to participate in the fourfold role of priesthood. So what is that? I'll summarize it because we're going to get deep in it. Number one, put God on display. Differentiation, giving brand, positioning, insight, we're holy, which doesn't mean perfect, Kadash means we're set apart. If we don't do this, we're trying to bring attention to ourselves as a god or blending in by worshiping whatever other idols are popular to the people we want to worship and be loved by. So differentiation, putting God on display is critical. Number two, do we help people navigate? Can we explain atonement and that they can be right with God? And number three, do we intercede on behalf of others? Sadly, it seems like we are most interested most often in judging and drawing lines and saying why and who is not following the laws or rules and can and can't be a part of a group. When number three, our number three purpose and goal as priests is to intercede, stand in the gap between God and the world and go back and forth in this intermediation. We need to spend our time, our heart asking for grace and interceding is both functional and instructive to ourselves and those watching us. So we'll learn more and more about that. Number four, and lastly, do we distribute resources to those in need? Not just, you know, think pastors or church only, but think about you and us as priests. I know it might seem weird, but bear with me on this thought exercise. Think about how you take a salary and then you use some for yourself for sustainability, but then give the rest to those who need it. Then in chapters 11 and 15 and 17 and 20, there are rituals shared giving regard about eating kosher, kosher clothing and disease rituals, about wearing blue robes and not eating pork because God wanted them and wants us, but perhaps not in the same way, to be different, to be differentiated. Is there something magical about blue or inherently wrong about pig and so on? That's not what I think it's saying. He's saying it's giving you these laws to set you apart from what the nations are around them. Because I'm in marketing, for me, that, that just kind of sits in a way I understand when you want to differentiate, brand something from other things. I want you to be different, God says. In chapter 23 and 24, how to have a party this is so cool. This is important to him. Call back to Genesis 1, the festivals, the seasons, the rhythms, six major festivals. Um, One is a bit more solemn. The rest are more, five of them are celebratory that we'll learn about. And remember that the story is good. Remember that you're in the story and it's unfolding today. That's what having these celebrations can do for us keep us close and reduce the likelihood of alienation and drift. And I just love that parties are so important. It keeps the family of God from losing the plot of the story. It helps to prevent them, prevent us from being consumed or destroyed by the drift. It might be hard not to react to the parts of Leviticus that put a monetary value on a person, especially when we see price differentiations based on gender. But that's when we compare the message to our culture in that culture. Marty Solomon and Brent Billings point to the fact that a value is being put on those in their culture that were considered to have no value, absolutely worthless. And so it's actually elevating if you look at it in that context. So it's telling a story of redemption because the point is to buy them back, to pay the price, to bring them back into the fold, into the family, to bring the dispossessed back, redeem them. Paul Patterson says that the first half of Leviticus is about me, us, approaching God as an individual. And the second half is about me us helping others find their way back to God so the first part of Leviticus is will be about God taking my our sin and getting rid of it restoring and redeeming it's not about saving a right relationship blood goes into the tabernacle and the second part it goes out and the goat goes in and the goat goes out into the wilderness God's making things right and this foreshadowing of what his son is ultimately going to do for us super cool